The Start On Demand. demand. Hey, hey, it's GMAC for Loren McNabb and the Start Podcast. Thanks for spending some time with us either on the air this morning or right here on the podcast. A very special day commemorating 75 years since D-Day, June 6, 1944. All sorts of conversations for you on that front, including we will have a guest, Brian Batter from France in Normandy at those celebrations today as well. We'll talk to a couple who's traveling across Canada. And we hear every summer about people who are riding their bicycles, walking, running across Canada. These folks are doing something super special in every major city they stop in. Also, in the 90210, Beverly Hills, no more tobacco sales. California is a different place. We'll share some stories, some different laws from California as well. Thanks for taking some time with us. Why don't we get things going right now? It is the start on demand. It is going to be difficult not to become overcome with pride, gratefulness, sadness, among other feelings at different parts of the day today as we commemorate one of the most pivotal days in Canadian history. Yeah, I think we were just uh, both wiping tears from our eyes, and I want to be honest about that because uh, as we speak, a powerful tribute to the thousands of soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy to gain a foothold in Nazi-controlled Europe 75 years ago today is now underway in France. And if you want, you can go to our website, globalnews.ca, to watch it. I promise you it's worth it. In the front row, there are veterans, some with walkers, some in wheelchairs, some with tears in their eyes, watching as tributes are being paid to them, to their friends, to those who made it home, and of course, the thousands more who didn't. And in the background, a warship can be seen guarding the coast and this ceremony. Now, just moments ago, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shared his thanks for their efforts with the story of Norman Harold Kirby. A member of the North Shore Infantry Regiment, he stormed Juneau Beach on the morning of June 6, 1944. But while making its way to shore, the landing craft carrying his unit hit a mine. So Norman Kirby did what he had been trained to do. He ran, without any weapons save a knife, a fork, and a spoon, Norman Kirby ran across the beach towards the enemy. He would go on to fight in Belgium, Germany, and Holland. He was just 19 years old. Come, Norman Kirby. In this moment here, Kirby, Norman Kirby is there, so he's standing up. He's got to be 95 years old as the crowd applauses him. Fourteen thousand Canadians stormed Juneau Beach that day with no guarantee of victory. It was a gamble like the world had never seen before. But when duty called, Canadians from coast to coast to coast answered. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's uh, difficult, as I said, off the top. Uh, It's going to be one of those days. I am so grateful for where we sit this morning, Loren, uh, the freedoms we enjoy, 
And it's impossible not to acknowledge what happened 75 years ago today. Remembrance Day is, for me, the most important day of the calendar. And I'm wondering why this hasn't become a holiday as well, a day of commemoration at the very least. I know we're doing that. Uh, Hopefully we will all take a pause at some point in our day just to think about and consider how fortunate we are to to live in the country we do. And if you don't have a good understanding, that's okay too. Take the time, pause and read a few stories, you know, listen here to hear what, hear what the Canadians, Canadian soldiers did that day and the allied forces as it was, it was the turning of the tides. Things would not have been the same perhaps if they had not done what they had done. June 6, 1944, better known as D-Day. And it was one of the most important days of the Second World War when Britain, Canada, the U.S. and their allies started the military push for what would end Adolf Hitler's defeat less than a year later. That in itself is overwhelming. The Allies' success meant D-Day would forever be associated with the invasion of Normandy. There were ships to the horizon, you know, and you thought nothing could stop this. It was most reassuring. It gave you great confidence. They really couldn't have stopped this. And they didn't, of course. We were all, I think, seasick. It was, we were in a tank landing craft. When you're very seasick, and I've been seasick before, you, you say, I'm, I could just as easily die right now. So it can't be much worse than this. We were very happy to see the land. Before we left, they showed us pictures of what the beach would look like. There's a a prominent house on the beach, and you're to leave that house on the right-hand side. Most of the fighting had gone off on the beaches. There was still quite a lot of damage and misery. That was part of a story told by Trooper Hugh Buckley. You can see that entire feature at globalnews.ca. Many have come up with the meanings for what that D and D Day mean, including Days of Days, Doomsday. But what does it really stand for? The Allies had code names for everything. And D Day was commonly used to signal the first day of a secret attack. The The D simply refers to the start day. And numbers are used to refer to what comes before or after. For example, the day before D-Day would be D-1, and two days after would be D-2. It's essentially the same as the countdown for a rocket launch when T is takeoff time and minus indicates the seconds before takeoff. The letters are derived from the words for which they stand, according to the U.S. Army's historical website. In other words, the D&D Day is a placeholder for day. That's interesting. I think there's lots of people who we even talked yesterday about the idea that some people thought D-Day stood for Dieppe, which I actually was, right was a, there which, which was a failed military launch in August of 1942. And so it's good to have a bit of understanding of where we're coming from. And, and as we continue throughout the day, we're going to have a lot of stories about what happened 75 years ago this morning. But we're also going to talk about the present and the future and the idea that, you know, we we have a lot more soldiers who've continued to serve. And one of the stories that's making headlines in Canada and out of Ottawa is this number, which is up to 5,000 number of homeless veterans we have. Homeless veterans who served our country and returned back to Canada 
and found the country perhaps wasn't there for them. And so there's a motion in Ottawa right now to do something about that finally, because we've been talking about that for decades. In honor of the Red River Fair package that we're giving away, we want to talk and go to the towns that are hosting their own fairs this weekend. So we're going to begin in Nivervale, just a 17, 17, not 15, not 20, 17 minute drive south of the perimeter. You'll find Nivervale. Uh, This is my neck of the woods. So it's a growing community. Thousands of people now live there, not to mention you've got St. Adolphe and St. Agath and all the rest. Well, Nivervale puts on a pretty darn good Fair. It it's a pretty good time, from what it's I understand. The old, nicely done. It's the old time country fair. It kicks off uh, tomorrow night. Uh, I, I'm hearing from people in the community that the rides are slowly being set up, which gets everybody in a tizzy. But you can head down there. It really does. <laughs> that's you, the you official know, word. In a tizzy. Tizzy. That's in a tizzy. Official. Hey, you've driven by uh, with your kids when they were younger. You drive by any kind of ride, and they're like, please, 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 can we stop? They don't care what it is because it's brightly colored. It's lit up. Flags flying. And they want you to come. So the really cool thing about Neverville's Fair is it has the rides, like a midway type thing, but it also has uh, bands that come play Friday and Saturday night. Um, They've got different events that go on throughout the day. They usually have uh, great entertainment. There's a kid's zone. Then, of course, there is the medway. There's a stunt freestyle with a motorcycle bike. So that's going on uh, throughout the Friday and Saturday. There's a canine in the cloud event, which is going to have like dogs Catching Frisbees, you can watch that, which is pretty cool. Then there's also going to be, for the kids, a hypnotist. Maybe that's for the adults, but but we'll find out. Uh, and they have lots of fun things going on. And so it's kind of neat to, to get outside. If you, have, if you have nothing to do tomorrow or mm-hmm. Saturday, get outside the perimeter and try something uh, a little bit different and see how different communities are growing. So that's the old time fair in Niverville. Very cool. And of course, uh, this weekend as well, if you're in Westman. Yeah, Brandon Fair. The the summer exhibition goes through until the 9th. All the midway, all the excitement, all the great stuff goes on on the uh, grounds of the Keystone Center inside and out. Grow, grew up going to the Going to oh, the uh, summer fair in Brandon. That's where I first that, that rode. Was the bi- that was a big outing, right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. We, that was a big deal, especially if your mom finally let you kind of hang out there alone. You know, like she'd be at the periphery. But Can all you right. believe, how old were you when you got to do I that? I want to say 13, like not very old. I mean, not very young. <laughs> I remember going home. I was in grade four. Okay. <laughs> And I thought, oh, I thought, I thought that my friend Todd Cuttington and I would go to the fair with Kim Hersack and Chantel. Uh, I can't remember Chantel's last night. I remember it. I just can't remember how to pronounce it. And uh, my mom just looked at me. She said, are you kidding me? Are you getting a ride there? Do you want me to chaperone? No, no, no. We're going to go on the bus. We're going to go by ourselves. So she didn't let you go in grade no. four. Thank you. I was grade like, four. I thought you were telling me that your mom was like, yes. All right. We'll like see you 10, in a couple hours. 11? No, I still remember. You had a story about your romantic experience on the zipper. <laughs> your zipper experience. <laughs> that was not it. Brandon Fair is also where I did not have a romantic experience, but I did attempt the zipper and I have never, ever gone back on it again. I don't blame you at all. That is the small town salute. Thank you to our friends at South Beach Casino for sponsoring this segment. We promised you something else. We've been highlighting June 4th. Pardon me, June 6, 1944, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And Tom Rice was with the 101st Airborne Division. This is, this is a, He's an American soldier. As they uh, parachuted into Nazi, Nazi-occupied France, 
at night and under fire. If you've seen uh, any of the archive footage or even watched something like Saving Private Ryan or other, you see how they were just lined up in planes, right? With uh, shells from below firing at them, firing at them. Plane after plane after plane. And plane after plane. And they'd get that green light or get that signal to go and they would just jump. Well, yesterday, Tom Rice did the jump under much less stressful circumstances. Great, great. Beautiful drive, beautiful jump, beautiful flight. Everything was perfect. It was uh, morning here, dark there. And that was hard going on uh, the DJ jump. I landed standing up for the most part and then went down to my knees and bounced a couple times because I had so much equipment. And I had a difficult time getting out of that equipment. It's so cool to hear these remembrances. Can I just say, he's 97. 97. And if you can, uh, Greg, you've retweeted some of that video on your... Twitter account, the smile on his face when he's landing. I, I, I really appreciate the idea that he went from an experience that would have been terrifying 75 years ago to have the courage also to go back and do that again at 97, but also just the idea that would have brought back a lot of memories. Very different scenario, obviously. I have had the honor of visiting all the major battlefields and more cemeteries than I can count across Holland, France, and Belgium. Because of their sacrifice, I proudly wear my poppy every day of my life. I know I've shared my tattoo with you guys before, but here it is again, lest we forget. And it's an absolutely gorgeous tattoo. Greg, thank you for your commitment to that memory. And that's where we start this hour. Well, that's because, of course, 75 years ago this morning, thousands of soldiers, 14,000 Canadians among them, were making their way through cold, choppy, grey ocean waters to take on the Germans on the French coast. We've been telling you that this morning, veterans, politicians, and thankful residents of France have returned to those beaches to commemorate the day the tides turned for the Allied forces, of course, the day now known as D-Day. Among all those troops that were there that day were members of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles who played an instrumental role in helping Allied forces secure that beach. Brian Batter served 45 years with the Rifles in the years after the war. They were also known as the Little Black Devils. And Brian is in Juneau Beach this morning to talk with us now. Good morning, Brian. Brian, no doubt an emotional day for everybody there. I'm wondering what stood out for you this morning as you watched the Prime Minister among all much, a lot of other people take the stage to talk about this. Oh, and I think we may have just lost Brian there. We will get him back on the he, line. He mentioned obviously, yesterday. Obviously an international connection. Yeah, and so. he's, he's, he's in Juneau Beach and he mentioned that the cell service is pretty sporadic and the ceremony is just wrapping. And so uh, we were grateful for him to share his experiences and, and what he saw this morning, but also what he knows about the Winnipeg rifles. He's over there with there's a couple of them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Minto Armories, Greg. That's my old neighborhood. But, uh, Absolutely. They have this fabulous museum in the back that sort of commemorates the history of the rifles and and also the, just the different efforts of uh, Winnipeg and Manitobans over the years, uh, going all the way back to, you know, the 1880s. And so there's lots to be learned about what happened today. Brian, do we have you now? Yes. I know we have a bit of a difficult cell signal, so we'll try this. Uh, I just want to talk about the ceremony. Uh, what stood out for you in terms of what you acknowledged this morning and, and, and what really meant something to you? The thousands of people who were there, a lot of the French uh, locals were there, and people even from Australia who got tickets because you had to register and get tickets from Veterans Affairs Canada and security checked by the French government. 
But there was uh, Americans, Australians, Canadians, of course, French citizens. So they all came to pay their respect to the Canadians. Why did you feel it would be important for you to be there today, Brian? Well, I've been in the Royal Olympic Rifles for a long time. Uh, when I first joined in 1962, I knew a lot of the D-Day veterans who were still serving in the reserve unit. And uh, I'm a bit of a historian. At one time, for about 12 years, I published our regimental magazine. So I delved into the history of, of the regiment, especially uh, Northwest Europe. As you stand on that beach this morning, Brian, what goes through your mind imagining what your, your fellow soldiers would have been going through 75 years ago today? Well, I'm going to go back 20 years. I was here for the 55th, and uh, we came from England on the night of the 5th, as they did. And I stood on the beach 55 years later with a fellow who was 18 and a fellow who was 21, um, who landed on the morning of June 6th. So that was very emotional, going across the channel as they did the night of the 5th and standing on the beaches the next morning. This this was... Uh, the same thing, but you know, a lot of there's not too many veterans left. We have two uh, living veterans who are present from our regiment, plus there's other veterans. Is they're getting few and far between now? Brian, uh, you're obviously familiar with the history, and as and that's a big deal to you. Can you share with us a little bit before we let you go the role of the Winnipeg Rifles on D-Day? Okay, um, B Company of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles landed where the Juno Beach Center is right now. That's where they landed. And the company commander, Captain Phil Gower, had a reinforced infantry company. Uh, so he went in with 164 soldiers instead of 130. And he had some other attachments, another 40 people who were attached to, uh, for other purposes to blow wire, blow, blow bunkers and that. And when they got off that beach that Tuesday morning, when they, as they landed at eight, nine minutes to eight that morning, when they got off a couple hours later, Captain Gower was the only officer left, and he had 24 soldiers and four stretcher bearers, first aid fellows, who he left on the beach to pick up the casualties. So that's the cost of freedom. The cost of freedom and, and being felt over there today. The two soldiers you mentioned uh, that are members of the Winnipeg Rifles, can you give us their names, Brian, and, and just uh, quickly about what you know about them? Well, Parks, we see quite often on TV, and um, John Stoico. Brian? Major Jim Parks Jim. and uh, Stoico? No, 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 he wasn't a major, he was a soldier at the time. Brian Batter, thank you for this. Thank you for your service. Thank you for conveying your memory your your remembrance of uh, twenty years ago. Lorraine and I both looked at one another with our with our mouths agap, imagining imagining what you would have been feeling twenty years ago on the fifty fifth anniversary. And thank you for representing us uh, at the seventy fifth. Uh, we will speak again. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Brian Batter joining us from. Normandy. It's 8.14 on a very special, on what can be a, a solemn Thursday, but there is celebration as well as we think about and show appreciation for for our lives and the sacrifice of others because of them. We are able to visit with you and you with us, and that means the world. 
uh, our guests this morning are Jay and Debbie Zamet. They have cycled their way through British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Cycled on a bike. I just want to make sure people hear that right. And just got to Winnipeg a few days ago. They're doing this uh, as part of a journey that they are calling what? It's Deb and Jay's Joyride. Deb and Jay's join Red. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. That was the voice of Debbie Zamet you just heard. And this journey is inspired by the idea. You obviously are fit, active people. You we like, try to be. You try to be. <laughs> well, you have to be if you're biking across the country. But their goal here isn't just about biking across the country. Uh, Jay, your goal is to drop off an adapted bicycle to a special needs child in every major city that you stop in or every province that you stop in. What was the impetus for this? Well, well, that's right. We we started this as a retirement project initially, and then we've always wanted to cycle across the country, and we wanted it to be meaningful, not just to us, but to but to other people. And uh, you know, we're passionate about cycling. We're passionate about universal access, and we're passionate that everybody should get a chance to ride. And so, uh, we partnered with Freedom Concepts here, a company out of Winnipeg, and a good friend of ours, Ken Van Stralen, and. Uh, We've supported him in the past, and uh, our idea was to uh, we'll give away a bike to a special needs uh, family person in every province we cross. So, Debbie, uh, typically there's a personal story that comes out of something so special being curated. What's your personal story? Is there one? Why is this accessibility? Why is it such a big deal for you? It's really comes from our passion of riding. Um, there's no personal connection beyond that. We just feel uh, getting on a bike provides independence. It provides exercise. It provides a sense of freedom. And um, everyone should be able to get on a bike. And we've met some people at 18 years old that are getting on the bike for the first time. And that's just been not only humbling, but heartwarming. And we love it. Well, my grandfather used to go to Cuba every winter. And what he would do is he would spend uh, the summer... Uh, collecting baseballs and baseball gloves and take them to Cuba. But he also every year would take a bike and he would ride that bike for two weeks and then he'd leave it behind for someone for that very reason, because of that independence factor. If you don't, you don't know what you're missing when it comes to a bicycle. We've had discussions about the difference maker it can be for lots of people that are underprivileged or otherwise. It, It is genuine freedom and so what's it like to, to hand over the keys, so to speak, to someone that's, that, that's needing and deserving of a machine like this? Oh, it's just, what a fantastic feeling. Our, our bike on uh, Friday will be our fourth one. But as Deb mentioned, we've, uh, our first stop was in Surrey, B.C., and we gave it to um, three young adults, and two of them had never been on a bike. And so uh, just to see the smiles on their faces when they're riding it down the hallway. And uh, so when the other kids are in phys ed or in the gym, they're going to be able to be able to ride their bike around the gym and around the hallways. And it's just it's exhilarating. It's... Uh, it's priceless. Well, there is a price, though, on a bike, let alone an adapted bike, right? I mean, it's, I think that's part of the challenge for people. It's not as simple as going to the store and, and buying a $100 bike. In many of these cases, Debbie, I'm imagining some of the adapted bikes can, can be a bit more pricey, which also can be a challenge for families wanting to put their child into a bike. Yeah, they're uh, significantly more expensive than a bike, a normal bike um, that you and I would ride. And also... Um, these people mostly need a bike that's custom made for them. So it could be thousands of dollars in yes. theory. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and they would be custom-mated for all sorts of different abilities? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Freedom Concepts does make these, and they've met with each person that we've given a bike to. They've measured them. The person's got to choose everything from the color. Um, Michael in Radville got to choose having a basket at the back because he was making a newspaper, and that was one of the most important parts, that he had at a the basket. Back. He had a basket at the back so he could put his newspapers and. He delivers his newspapers in town now. Um, so he's And we have to give a plug that. for that. It's the Radville Comet. We really have to do that for Michael. <laughs> That's pretty cool, yeah. So when we when we talk about going across the country, are you fundraising or or is this just you with your own dollars or helping free and partnering with Freedom Concept to put this together? The initial uh, plan was for us to donate a bike per province. That's a personal um, retirement project that we decided to do. But we've had a lot of uh, people express interest in helping and participating. And so we have set up a link um, on our blog site. And um, right now it is for Cerebral Palsy Association of Manitoba. And so they are going to collect funds specifically for bikes in Manitoba. Um, And we'll add that province by province as we go, hopefully. Um, But right now we're all set up for... um, for Manitoba to be make and have donations made there on our blog. When you talk about cerebral palsy and and the bike, I go back to the West End, and I know at least a couple of our listeners have texted me about my old friend Halder, who I used to do uh, Cubs and Scouts with, went to school with us at Isaac Brock, and he had his adaptive bicycle, and he was always a happy guy, mm-hmm. but never more happy when he was a exercising his independence and out in the community and and he's gone on he works for the red cross in vancouver he's a super changer uh, absolute game changer because he he was because he was out in the community and he was able to do cubs and scouts with us and he was just he was just Alder from the from the West End. He was one of our friends as opposed to him never getting out and so that freedom uh, either to earn a living or just to be a part of the community is a game changer for a lot of people, Debbie. Absolutely. Absolutely. It gives them a sense of belonging, um, whether it was in uh, Surrey where they were uh, using their bikes for their uh, phys ed and they couldn't participate before. The other kids were going for a run and they couldn't join. And these guys are going to get on a bike now and they're going to be out with the rest of the class. And Jay, I mean, we're trying to break down barriers here, right? The, the, the least amount of things that are different about us, the, the better chance we have to, to get along. I know it's sort of a kumbaya thing, but that, that's, that's really what, it, what it's all about. Well, that's right. And what you have in, in Freedom Concepts is they do custom make these bikes. And on a scale of one to five, five being the most, uh, those that need the most assistance on a bike, they custom make those bikes to the individual and make them also size oriented so they can last three to five years in, in those bikes. So they'll get long-term use out of them. And uh, it's uh, really quite an impressive uh, facility that, uh, that they have here. But you're right, the, the, bikes, the bikes are expensive, but the look on the faces is priceless. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. Well, you can't put a price on that. And I know, I know that's exactly what you mean. And I think you're doing a beautiful thing. But I, I do have to ask, uh, I spend a lot of weekends at Clear Lake, and it's a, kind of more of a biking community. You, you walk or you bike, but you don't get in your car often. And after just two days on a bike, and I'm talking sporadically, not working hard, <laughs> I'm sore in places I didn't know you could be sore. And so I do have to ask about this journey you're making. They're the best part and maybe the worst part. Do you have a Do you have a high and a low you could share with us? Or maybe not. Maybe you can share it with us. But you know, it's well, it, it's all been fantastic. Every day's been uh, every day's been fantastic. Some days are more fantastic than others, and so uh, some of the weather was challenging this year. It was a lot of easterly winds coming into the prairies, especially. You, you, I would have thought initially that. Uh, 
the, uh, the mountains uh, would be tough, but we lived there, so we're kind of used to that. And then I thought Saskatchewan would be tough, but, you know, the weather wasn't bad through there. But when we moved into Manitoba, it was east winds, cold, of hard course. winds. So up against the wind the whole way. Yeah. Less, have, less to, fantastic. You have to earn your way to Winnipeg, right? <laughs> not everybody can just come here and feel you can't welcome. Just coast into that, our town. That's right. You've got, you've got to be. You've got to, It's a little bit of a challenge. Well, we appreciate everything that you're doing, and we, you know, you must have still. You're from here originally, right? Yeah. Uh, you grew up here, both of you. So you must have some friends and family that are uh, looking forward to spending time with you, and and we look forward to keeping in, in touch. Can, can we keep in touch with you uh, as you make your way across the country? Well, Greg, thanks. Uh, for having us on and absolutely and yeah we are looking forward to a few down days we do have a little healing to do and quickly the boy who's getting the bike tomorrow he's four years old I believe so. Yes, Milo, and he knows he's getting it. He does because he's oh. met with everybody. Oh, I can't yes. wait! And so but we get to meet him tomorrow for the first day. Amazing! First time. We'll share the pictures with our listeners uh, when we get them. It's a beautiful thing. And your blog, of course, so people can follow you. Like uh, they're with you. That's right. That's what, right. What's the address? Um, it's J and Deb's Joyride dot home. Just give it a Google and it'll come right up. You guys, an absolute inspiration and a, and a joy to meet you both. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. 847 on this Thursday morning on the start. We'll take a pause. We'll update traffic and weather for you. And in more celebrations, it is D-Day, 75th anniversary. June 6, 1944, one of the most critical days in Canada's history. Thanks for spending part of this day with us. But how would you feel, as a smoker or non-smoker, about the idea of removing cigarettes from stores completely? So you mentioned 90210. Well, in Beverly Hills this week, they unanimously, Greg, agreed to ban the sale of cigarettes, cigars, electronic cigarettes, and chewing tobacco in that city. So they can't stop you from smoking in your home. I'm sure there's all sorts of controls about smoking on beaches and in public places. But you can't even buy a cigarette in the city uh, once this goes through and they figure out how to implement that and all the rest, which is which is believed to be the strictest control seen anywhere in North America. Now that's, so that's one thing in Beverly Hills where you probably don't need to drive more than four or five miles in either direction to get to Los Angeles, Burbank or Pasadena, another, another community in the metro area. It'd be tough to do that in Winnipeg, or, I mean, heaven forbid you do that in Manitoba. I mean, I'm as staunch a non-smoker as they come, but uh, restricting and eliminating people's access to this legal product, that is a huge step here. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this one. I, I, I could be pious and righteous about it. It's about time somebody no. did this, but I, I don't think that's how I, I feel about it. Well, the it. word you use that's key there is it's a legal product. So right. until it's illegal, you're treating it like it belongs in some sort of like speakeasy or down in the basement or in underground. And yeah, like I don't love smoking. I don't like walking past people who are smoking just because of the smell bugs me. But that's not going to solve the problem by getting rid of the sale in a city like Beverly Hills. If you banned it in Winnipeg, well, now people have to drive a little farther, right, to get their cigarettes. And so it might control or curb the amount of public smoking that you see. Oh, but, the, 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 you, I don't think you could do it. But well, you, it wouldn't happen. But but in an area like Beverly Hills, well, you're, they're just going to walk across the line into the next uh, is it Pasadena or, you know, whatever? <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Don't, There's a whole bunch of communities right? all like, surrounding Right, or you just find your, next, right? find your next place <laughs> to buy cigarettes. So I, I think I have a problem with this. I can't believe that. Yeah. We're agreeing on this. And yeah. we're on the other side of it that I thought, 
I might be when I first heard about it, I was kind of applauding in my head and then I went, hold on here. There's some rights here that people have and I think they're being stomped on somewhat and I think uh, there's going to be a little bit of backlash over this decision, although in California, you never know. You really don't ever know well, what the response is going to be. Some of those right? places, and they might just really have a population that say only twelve percent or six percent or five percent of them smoke anyway. But the idea that you could go ahead and do something like this on a legal product to me seems like it's fascinating. But I suppose it's you know when you look at it, all the different bans you have in place, like bans on straws. There's nothing to leave. No one's saying you can't manufacture straws. They're mm-hmm. just saying in restaurants now we don't want to see them. You know, Salisbury House doesn't do them. The for, uh, Cinnaboyan Park doesn't have them anymore. Restaurants in Vancouver. So that's a movement of something saying we, this is bad for the environment. We're that's just an deciding. organic. They're deciding. They're not deciding to do it. not to do it as opposed to legislatures coming in and saying they're not going to do it. But what about plastic bags? Plastic bags are being manufactured and they're perfectly legal to make and sell and use. But then city councils in different cities, is, is it Lynn Lake or uh, in Manitoba? One Thompson, of them, I think. In northern it, Manitoba. Lynn Lake might have been the first one. Yeah, you might be right there. But you know, in talking about California, I think it's Carmel, California. Clint Eastwood used to be the mayor of Carmel, I believe, back in the day. I, I don't think they allow any chain restaurants in Carmel. There are cities that have done for health reasons. Like, what's the? No, they just, just want it to the be character of their community. Okay. So they aesthetic aesthetically, it looks better to have you know, independent restaurants. Yes, and there are many communities that have done everything they can to keep Walmart and other big box retailers out of their community because of community standards that they've decided that they've wanted to create. So California is a little bit of a, a, a different uh, onion for sure. It's still, you know, it's it's. Similar to the debate that's going on in, in many small towns or rural areas still about cannabis, you know, the councils that that's have decided they're not going to sell that legal product, but that's different. It's bringing in a product and then banning it as opposed to the product already being legal and then banning it. Cindy, one of our loyal uh, listeners just texting now, so they're doing this, but guns are okay? Ooh. Now, now that's easy to do on just about every mm-hmm. issue I like in the that United point. States, but it is a, a pretty good cut. Uh, did you find out which Manitoba community is it banned? Was the it, it was Lake. It was They were okay. the first one. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also Googling as we speak here, no chain restaurants in uh, Carmel, oh, sorry, California. sorry, Leaf Rapids. Oh. That was a faulty information. Uh, Leaf Rapids. And then it looks like you're right. Maybe Thompson, the Paw, and Snow Lake also went through doing it. I know there's talk in the municipalities outside of Winnipeg banning plastic bags, but this a cigarette ban is a whole other conversation. Uh, one good idea that a listener texted about when it comes to cigarettes is that if, you want, if you're worried about access or not having them in your community, what if you just put them on sale at the LLC at the liquor stores rather than in all stores, and then you would reduce the availability of them if that's really something you wanted to do. I'm on, get this, You've gone down a rabbit hole, haven't you? I have, and I'm going to share it with you before we take our final break and welcome Jeff Courier in the studio. Carmel by the Sea's one square mile village is as unique in charm as it is in fun facts. No high heels law. Oh, come on. No street addresses. Clint Eastwood was once mayor and Doris Day helped make Carmel dog heaven on earth are a few of the most popular icebreakers when meeting locals and visitors in this European-style town. No chain restaurants. A permit is required to wear high heels. I just... Come on. Like, Though often just... mistakenly thought of as an urban myth, the 
the municipal code of Carmel bans wearing shoes having heels more than two inches in height or with the base of less than one square inch unless the wearer has obtained a permit for them. While the local police do not cite those violation in violation of the ordinance, this seemingly peculiar law was authored by the city attorney in 1963 to defend the city from lawsuits resulting from wearers of high-heeled shoes tripping over irregular pavement distorted by tree roots. Permits are available without charge at City Hall. Go away. Carmel by the sea. You're beautiful, though. I've just looked at some photos. That's a pretty town. Yeah, I guess they're pretty judgy. I guess if Beverly Hills can ban the sale of tobacco, Carmel banning high heels, I guess that's a thing. 945. Listen to the song. Jeff Forte behind the glass. Thanks for everything you do for us, man. You are spectacular. He never once misses to segue with a perfect song. Nobody listens to the show more closely. I'm convinced of that. Your dad? Maybe. Ross Mackling. Who was in Juno Beach six years ago today. I knew he'd gone to Normandy and been on Juno Beach. I didn't realize that he did it on, on June 6th. That's pretty good for him. Pretty cool. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.